Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me, producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchase is made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We covered a lot of great movies that were adapted from other material in season 10. Our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals is where listeners can purchase the source material behind all our adapted film discussions. It helps support the show at no extra cost when you buy through our links. In our foreign language Best Picture nominees series, we looked at several adaptations, including Z, The Postman Il Postino, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and Letters from Iwo Jima. We hit the high seas with In the Heart of the Sea from Nathaniel Philbrick's nonfiction book for our Aquatic Killers series. Eh, definitely a weaker entry in that series. I bet the book is better. Oh, me too. Member bonus episodes featured adaptations like Gone Girl, The Russia House, Ivanhoe, The Hot Rock, The Big Heat, and Naked Lunch. Oliver Stone brought not just original stories, but also adaptations like Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, Eight Million Ways to Die, Talk Radio, and Born on the Fourth of July. Mary Heron's disturbingly insightful American Psycho was adapted from the Brett Easton Ellis book. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Oh my God, it even has a watermark. And of course, more Stephen King with The Mist, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption for our King a la Darabont series. Find links to all of these books and more adapted films on our Originals page. That's thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports our show. Get the full list of books that we've talked about and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Crouching Tiger is over. Make a wish and pray for flight. In a land of eternal beauty and infinite mystery... 
a legend was born. The story of a warrior. The woman he loved. A daring outlaw. And a princess destined to become a warrior. Oh, Andy, if you're going to jump off a mountaintop with the next real crew, where would you go do that? Absolutely over on the Instagram page, Pete, Instagram.com slash the next reel. We are doing all sorts of posts about the movies we're talking about every week, about people involved in those movies, about the hosts of all the different shows. We have just a huge variety of posts. It's a fun place to kind of check in and and see kind of kind of continue the conversation in another way, in a one might say a photographic way. Oh, photographic movie sharing. Mm-hmm. You know what else they can do? Uh, what else? They can come. They can come join us on our social media profile. We'd love that. Just come join us if you if you uh, you know if you feel good if you feel good and you feel generous. Head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel and uh, join our movie community. You can come hang out with us on our Discord channel and our Discord community and all sorts of members Crouching only uh, channels in there where dragon. people are discussing movies and TV and trailers and sharing reviews and it's really a it's a a vibrant. Uh, fantastic community of movie lovers and we're deeply grateful for all of you who have joined us over there and support the show. Thank you and we'll see you online. All right, Andy, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Feels like uh, we've talked about this movie and we haven't. We never did. We never have. No, it has not come up. I think it's only come up in conversation when we talk about other films, specifically in the awards segment and, uh, you know, in context of when this was up against those particular films. So we'd like to spend the next hour talking about this film and all the awards and nominations. It got. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, buckle up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so give us a little bit of context. Where are we in our series of foreign film, best picture, uh, best foreign language nominees? Yeah, so we're this is our foreign language films nominated for Best Picture series. This is the sixth film in this particular series. It is the seventh film that is a foreign language film that has been nominated for Best Picture. Uh, this is the year 2000, just a couple years. I mean, we hit real stride in the 90s, uh, kind of the mid-90s, starting to nominate foreign language films for Best Picture after kind of a, a dearth of nominations that we had from the early 70s. So. It's nice to see this getting nominated so close on the heels to uh, Life is Beautiful, which was just a couple years before, and uh, The Postman, Il Postino, a few years before that. And so I, it's it's great to kind of hit this point where, I mean, we've only got two decades, really, um, from the time this was made to now, that uh, we still have, like, you know, this and then four other films that will be nominated for Best Picture. And so it's nice to see. And it's curious to see how this shift is changing. And really, like, especially as we get to where we are today, and this will be something we talk about as we continue this series, how are things going to go moving forward? I'm really curious about that. I I feel like we're kind of out of that uh, exclusive uh, Hollywood period that we uh, talked about, kind of that Reagan era, where, you know, we don't necessarily need to let's celebrate us. You know, I, yeah, I feel like right. we're at a point where um, there's a little more uh, appreciation to celebrate a wider swath of uh, of stories from around the world. 
Well, it's interesting. I was listening to an interview with James Seamus, who's a producer and writer on this film. And, <laughs> and uh, extra. <laughs> and extra, right? <laughs> really oddly placed extra. <laughs> Well, he, he has some interesting perspectives, and I think it's you know this was a, a retrospective, like a twenty year retrospective or something on the film. Right? I don't know. It's, it's some some level of retrospective. So some years had passed uh, when they were doing this interview, and and he has this this insight. He says, you know, I mean, I don't I don't know that we knew it then uh, what we were doing by bringing Ang Lee's sensibility to this like pulpy. He calls it chop suey cinema, which I think is really not great, but. Oof. That he yeah. says it over and over again. And the interviewer's like, really? That's the word you guys would use? Chop suey cinema? He says, well, it's the word I would use. <laughs> I I'd, be like, I'd be like, oh, good. Well, at least you're aware that, of what you're saying. So he, um, you know, you're applying these... we are working together right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Uh, you know, but, but, you know, they worked together for 25 years and, right. uh, and so like having this experience together, he says, bringing the sensibility, we really intentionally wanted to have an East meets West production here, right? We wanted to, we were super intentional from the entire script writing process, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Like, how are we going to get this right? Because we want to we want to cross the pond here we want to make this something that is accessible to everybody because it was it, it was hard for um or or there hadn't been at the time quite such a massive uh, celebration or they they certainly weren't very frequent um and that in in many respects this was one of another one of those pivot points those data points in cinematic history in which we we in it developed a new appreciation for chinese culture and cinema and and ended up learning a whole lot from one another in the, along the way so I, I thought it was really interesting and i think it leads to one of the big questions which is like how does this film balance the culture of traditional chinese genre films and you know western action films i mean maybe western films but films of the west that are also action films like when was the last time that an asian film had so much notice and popularity in American culture. I feel like it probably is The Last Emperor in the 80s, yeah. which um, which was done in English. It was a it was nominated for Best Picture. It was a, a, a big awards winner. And that was probably the last time that there was an Asian film that really had its culture um, noted and celebrated and done beautifully on screen. I mean, that's just a sumptuous film to look at. And uh, just gorgeously put together. And it's a great film, too. And I think that kind of, I guess, tying everything together, I think it's nice to see this culture being celebrated in a way. And sure, it's kind of this fictional version of uh, of Chinese history. This isn't really um, historical by any stretch of the imagination, at least as far as I know. But, you know, it, it goes around. to your point last week. It was like the value of the, a fable in, in telling yeah. these stories. This is very much a fable. It is. And and that's, I think, and I think that's something that I find really rich in the in the Asian culture and the way that this Chinese story plays out where it is, it feels kind of like uh, something you would read in a fairy tale book to your kids, the way that people talked and interacted and the way, I mean, it it feels like it's pulling from a lot of history, but also you have this this fighting technique where all of a sudden people are light, you know, their bodies have this lightness to them and they can jump and kind of leap from rooftop to rooftop or up, you know, bamboo treetop to treetop. 
in these really floating movements. And I think that 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 lent a real sense of this fairy tale to the story that just made it feel also, while a celebration of the culture, it also gave it this kind of magical realism um, sensibility that I think worked really well, especially because it had this wuxia martial arts um, element as well. And just I think all of these things came together that really, I just I feel like it led to a very appealing film. Because it was at the ha- in the hands of Ang Lee, I feel that that also allowed the film to have a little more heft and a little more weight. Because I think he was really thinking about themes and the ideas behind all of this stuff, like great fairy tales often have. The what could you put into it that really gives this um, the meaning to what's going on here? And I think that's why it's such a successful, uh, masterful film. Did you hear the story about the Taiwanese financier? I'm not leading into a joke. No. So apparently, there was a Taiwanese financier who goes heretofore unnamed. And this person says, I'm going to throw a ton of money at this. And then then he sees the script and the director and puts those together and changes his phone number and (laughs) stops returning calls. And was out of the big, and they were already the crew was already there. They were already ready to to start shooting, and they had to scramble and find financing for this thing. Well, it, this this all goes to say, like Ang Lee was a, a incredibly unique director for this particular project, but he because of just what he had done and what he was what he was known for. He's an artistic director. And in his words, artistic directors don't direct Wuxia films, right? They're choreographers. They they're the ones who get Wuxia films. Because in China Nor do they direct Hulk movies, but hey. Or well, it, it, it's interesting to hear him talk about uh, about these movies together, and I, I I don't know if I want to open that door. We'll see. <laughs> the 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 whole idea, though, that he would be able to come and bring something unique to this, and that you know, to hear him talk about his adoration, his fantasy of directing one of these movies because he's grown up with it. Like he, this is he calls this Chinese pulp fiction. This wuxia, these wuxia books, right? It this is pulp newspaper fiction for him. He grew up with it as a kid. He uh, just absolutely a- adores it because of its fantasy. And he says he, he they there were a number of fights with uh, that uh, arguments that he would get into with his stunt director, a legendary um, uh, Yan Nuping, uh, who was stunt director on the matrix and and uh, he is a, a legendary wuxia acrobat right and he says you know i don't i don't think they're gonna get it i don't think they're gonna get what you're doing here i don't think you can have these guys on wires flying that's a chinese thing and the rest of the world is gonna think it's ridiculous and ang lee said that's like a cornerstone to my fantasy is that this is a superhero movie this is a movie about people with unique and special abilities and focus hmm. and training. And uh, and and that's that's part of the story we have to tell is showing the action this way. And I, I some of the movie is so much the better as a result of it. Oh, 100%. When it first starts happening and you're like, wait a minute, that was kind of an odd leap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's fairly early on 
when uh, I think it's when the thief is in the in the uh, compound and is is starting yeah. to, trying to steal the sword, and uh, all of a sudden it's like oh all, now they're leaping onto the roofs and yeah and it's like oh okay that's this is going to be a story like that and I had I I just I was like wow this is cool like I just got super excited by it so yeah. I think it's funny that they would think that some people were like oh this is dumb what is this all about um, but I do it's funny because. I remember when this film came out and the kind of the big, you could almost say exclamatory wow that echoed from the United States about how cool this movie was and just like what was happening here. And I was talking to my my friend over in, in Malaysia and he was just like, oh, we've been seeing stuff like this for years. This was nothing new. I don't know why you're yeah. all so excited about this thing. So right. it, it kind of made me laugh. I was like, oh, okay, that's that's perspective. I didn't realize that because, I mean, it was new to me. Yeah. But it's just, I think that's, it, they just did it in a way that that really, um, I don't know, allowed for something that also was more than just what you would typically picture was just like a martial arts movie. Yeah, it, it typically, what do you picture as a martial arts movie, right? It's Bruce Lee. For me, it's like, it's like The Way of the Fist and Enter the Dragon. And yeah. Like those were the classically sort of stereotypical uh, martial arts movies. This this was notably different, and and part of it, Angli says, you know, people get mixed up about martial arts films. He says people think martial arts films are about martial arts. That is wrong. Martial arts films are musicals. It comes from choreography. It comes from dance and opera and acrobatics. It's really hard to put a martial artist in a martial arts film because they fight. And it's over too quickly. Like a real martial arts fight, if people are going at it with each other, it's over like that. It's so fast. They just can't do it that way. So you want dancers and acrobats to do these martial arts films. And uh, and I think this movie, when you look at it as a musical, it, it fits much more in line with West Side Story than it, <laughs> it does with, uh, you know, with what you would typically consider a, a fighter film. Yeah, I, I suppose. But I, I think... It's it's interesting, I think, saying that then and saying that now because of the way that this film has and and specifically uh, Yuan Wo Ping's uh, work in this yeah. film and how it has really influenced where we are today and all the films up to today in the world of stunt work. Because I don't think you have films. I mean, obviously, he did The Matrix. You mentioned that. So I think that started kind of creating this sense in people's minds as to what you could do. You know, it was just a little bit of that. But this really kind of pushed people, because then it went from this to Hero to House of Flying Daggers. Like, we had this kind of jump of these this kind of wuxia uh, mm -hmm. work that we were getting here in the States. And then people started saying, oh, let's integrate that style into these other projects that we have, whether it's John Wick or... Atomic Blonde or uh, Marvel movies or whatever it may be. I think it 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 gave people an opportunity to say, you know, we could really change up the way that people view stunt work. And I think that's just the shift is like thinking about stunts and what you can do using kind of that that wuxia wire magic that they were doing here and creating something um, that's really evolved. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think you can make a direct connection. And I'll stay with the musical line because I think there's there's value to that. A direct connection between uh, Crouching Tiger and John Wick. The idea that violence is in, in movies is at its best 
treated more as a choreographic exercise and a dance. You know, it's the same thing in a musical. You have a scene, characters get worked up, and they sing and dance about it. In John Wick, you have a scene, a dog gets killed, character gets worked up, and you have an, an exotic, balletic, violent clash about it and it is every bit i think i, I think i just uh, f- forgive me for saying this every bit uh michael bay uh where you you characters get worked up and they have a giant cg explosion about it right it's just this <laughs> this ballet of explosives and uh but all of these things i mean when you you have to stop and think okay if if john wick were a thing if it wasn't a movie you couldn't put real assassins in a john wick movie it would be over too fast, right? You can make this uh, on legal line a Mad Lib and fill in any one of these these sort of exercises <laughs> in stunts and violence. And it, I, I think this Crouching Tiger was pivotal in this because it demonstrated uh, it, it was just another not maybe not so pivotal, but it was another data point that built the case for uh, a way of handling the exercise of fighting and drama in a way that has directly impacted all of the Marvel movies. <laughs> Uh, uh, obviously, which are generational now in scope. And um, I, I think that is uh, that that is not to be undervalued. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. OK, then. Well, I, I feel like we should start the awards ceremony. <laughs> We've covered it. Uh, so tell me tell me that just right before we get right uh, into the details of the movie. How did you feel watching this movie? Was this did it hold up as well as it did the last time you watched it? It, it absolutely did. In fact, I was so thrilled to see how well it held up, how well, how strongly I reconnected with these characters just right away. And kind of the emotional journey that we have, uh, just kind of the and that's what I think is so interesting is there's such this kind of this repressed love um, between our our two leads. And then we have, I guess you could say it's another repressed love story between the other two. It's, or I should say that one's more maybe not repressed, but it's, you know, um, it's it's not an accepted one because he's a, ga- a bandit and she's, you know, w- you know, scheduled to be married. And um, but also I think. It's it's a fascinating look at the way that you have these uh, kind of the teacher and students. You know, you have an interesting thing going on because um, Limu Bai's master had been killed by Jade Fox, uh, but because she wanted to be trained and he he had refused her. And so, you know, she went through this whole thing of stealing this book, and then she was trained, training Jen, who could read, and Jade Fox couldn't. And so it's like the student and the master. I just, and then Lee uh, Mubai wants to train Jen and, and be her master. And it's just like there's this constant like dance between the different levels of learning, and it, it becomes this really interesting way of looking at um, uh, just kind of people's place in the world. Not to mention like men and women. That was another really interesting thing about this film and how Shulian is just as much a fighter as Li Mubai is. Um, but uh, like she and Jade Fox and Jen, like as as Shulian talks to Jen, she's like, well, a woman's place, you know, our, we need to just get married. And, and she's trying to talk Jen down from being this thief that she knows she is and just say, you know what, it's not worth it to just marry your man and just kind of close all this off. And it's it's interesting to see these different themes kind of playing out in the story. And I just, I was thrilled watching this to see how well all of it held up. And I was just, uh, it was just a, just a very exciting rewatch. And I hadn't seen it in years. And so 
yeah, I just, I, I was so happy to kind of re-enter this world once again. Michelle Yeoh carries uh, so much weight uh, in this movie. Uh, you talk about that particular scene. Let's also not forget, uh, Julian is a business owner, right? She runs yeah. her dad's security company, right? right she is. Right. She runs a business. She's independent. She's a warrior, just as, uh, on uh, on par with anyone else in the scene. Um, it, it, she is an, an incredible stalwart in this movie, and yet so subdued because of the cultural sort of repression that is put upon her and and her place. I I think she's just magical to watch, both as a character and as a performer. I think she's just incredible. And, and according to Lee, she, he was he felt like she was the only one who came in as an action star and also proved that she was an actress, like she was a performer. She could do this, um, especially after the first week of shooting. She broke her knee and had to be returned to the United States and did the rest of the movie in a brace. That is work. <laughs> That Jeez. is work right there. She, Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, watch her spider woman down the womaning down the side of that uh, side of the wall, right? That kind of stuff yeah. that is not, it's just, that's not CG. It's all straight wire work. I mean, it's just incredible what she was capable of doing. Well, throughout the film, I mean, that's yeah. what's so great about it is that Ang Lee really worked to have the stunt work performed by most of the actors themselves without, without stunt performers. And so, yeah, when you see her doing that, it's her on wires kind of doing that. And you can tell because, you know, as she turns to look at you, you see it's her face. I mean, this was really before mm -hmm. the age of really strong uh, face replacement. And so... Yeah, it's these actors doing these things. It's really, it's just exciting to watch. It's interesting that he says that, though, about her being like the only action star coming to him. I'm like, oh, Italian fat, kind of, he might have done a few things, but. Well, but he was not a martial artist, right? <laughs> well, that's true. He, he, he was, was really an action kind of star, like... but he was not, the, everybody oh, okay. else in here was the martial artist, right? They they came through as acrobats. Zhang Ziyi, uh, Michelle Yeoh, um, Chen Chang, they all came with a background in martial arts. And, and Italian fat has done a ton of fantastic, like, straight action movies but in terms of being a demonstrated martial artist i don't think that i think this was new okay okay that's yeah that makes more sense then yeah it, you know i i do i want to go back just a little bit to angli and language because i i made a comment in our notes and you made a comment back and i want to make sure i understand if we're talking about the same thing i sure, ha yeah. have been reading stories about angli's obsession and multiple people uh, that i have watched interviewed in preparing for this conversation said that Ang Lee is a student of of language. And we're talking specifically here about the Chinese language. Uh, this movie was was uh, done in Mandarin. Uh, and all of the lead performers, with the exception of Zhang Ziyi, come with a different uh, language background. Uh, Chow Yun-Fat was Cantonese. Uh, Michelle Yeoh was uh, Malaysian uh, and learned all of the Mandarin in phonetics. Um, and um, can't remember what the other one was. Uh, anyway, so they're all different, except for Zhang Ziyi, who was raised uh, speaking Mandarin. Um, so they all had struggles there. And so Ang Lee worked them tirelessly to make sure that what they were doing represented the era of this sort of fabled China uh, in which superheroes fly. Uh, and then hand-edited the translations, the subtitles of this movie, because it was such a, an international production, he wanted to make sure that to his eye, what was said in Chinese was represented in English. 
knowing that, and this is the part I think is interesting, knowing that the intensity of what is going on in Chinese is based on a foundation that is 5,000 years old, and uh, that what comes out in English is not even close to the heart of what you can what you can do uh, in in Chinese, and uh, that he was deeply aware of that and sort of tried his best. Uh, pretty much, if you really want to see this movie, learn Mandarin and then go watch it with the subtitles off. Uh, but he paid special attention to doing what he thought was uh, his his very best in those subtitles, and that's not usually work done by the director. Well, and I think you, when you say learn Mandarin and and then watch the movie without subtitles, I think it's more than that. It's almost like learn Mandarin, but then learn really like the all the subtleties that go along with everything in the culture, right? You need to understand the culture. You should move to China. <laughs> yeah, and live there for 35 years, really. I mean, just study. Go become a student. You got to go to high school and college there. You got some history classes. <laughs> you got work to do. Yeah, and, and my note there to that point, because I, th- I found that to be really interesting too, and I really appreciate appreciate that he put that in there because I feel like it comes through. Like I, as I'm watching the movie, I I kept noticing the way that things were phrased and stuff. And I'm just like, oh, this is really, it really is smartly translated in a way where I feel like, I feel like there's an intention to understand a little more of the depth of what they're saying rather than just a straight translation. So I, I definitely appreciated that with that. And I didn't even know that at the time. I was, I was taking those notes. But my point was more specifically about the accents because they worked <laughs> on these accents. They really did. But again, yeah. talking to my friend from Malaysia after he saw right. this, he's just like, oh, it's terrible. Uh, I think he comp- I think he primarily complained about um, uh, uh, Chen Chang who has his accent is the Taiwanese accent. That's and, right, Taiwanese. Yeah. Yes. And he said, oh, their accents were terrible. Like, you know, they none of them sounded really Chinese except for Ji uh, uh, Zhang. And, and that really frustrated him um, because he's like, it's like watching, you know, like a British period piece and then some suddenly someone comes in with a Southern accent. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's like, hey, well, you, you don't quite fit here. It doesn't quite work, so. Would that it were so simple. <laughs> <laughs> Would that it were, yes. <laughs> right, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think I, I read this about all four of these characters coming at this, you know, to hear Chang and Fat talk about it. He said, like, the first, my first take on the first day of shooting, it took 29 takes for me to get it right. I have never had that experience before. Ang Lee is hard. <laughs> 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 Just trying to to change from Cantonese to to um, Mandarin is hard. Yeah, uh, and so I I think it's I I think overall the effort is fantastic. I think the, it's probably hardest on uh you know I wonder about the characters who have to learn it phonetically in their own language like Michelle Yeoh. I can't I'm I'm watching this conversation between Zhang Ziyi and Michelle Yeoh, and they're talking having that incredibly nuanced conversation uh about you know the woman's place and the role of marriage and the role of fighting and to realize that fundamentally Michelle Yeoh does not really under- understand what she's saying Right. She's heard a translation of it, but she right. doesn't get it. And Zhang Ziyi knows what she's saying and is probably silently judging her. 
but you know, it's one of those things where it reminds me of, I mean, I, I feel like we talked about something similar in like the Jason Bourne movies, because, yeah. you know, here's a, a, a character, Jason Bourne, who speaks a number of languages, and Matt Damon didn't, and he had the little earworm in his yeah. ear with a translator uh, speaking offset, uh, telling him all of his lines phonetically, and he would just say it, and he had no idea what he was actually saying. <laughs> so it's actually even a worse situation there, because he's just like, you know, yeah, that's just so good, or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> because it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, it definitely wasn't that. Oh, so, it, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is a challenge, I think. I do almost every one that. of our podcasts like that. You've been podcasting for years with Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Uh, the the idea of uh, the the gender roles were challenged uh, beautifully, but celebrating, I think, in particular, uh, the role of women in uh, these sort of alternative roles, and and doing it not just literally by demonstrating we have women fighters, and and uh, but but in the role of just the the kind of trope of the princess yearning for more story. Um, I, I think Zhang Ziyi does an incredible job of of uh, handling or carrying the mantle of that restlessness, uh, and and uh, just sort of wearing the 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 cloak of green uh, well in this movie. She was she was inspired find for me when I first saw her. I mean, it, spectacular. Oh, she's she's brilliant the way that she plays this character. And it's because it really feels and this is what I I find so fascinating about her character is she has this intense drive to be more than what society tells her to be. And it's but and because of that drive, it's kind of pushed her into this situation where she's essentially her only opportunity to really do anything about it is to work with this criminal, with Jade Fox, who will train her and and gives her the opportunity and actually gives her the book so that she ends up being able to do a lot more than Jade Fox ever could. But it also pushes her into this place where she sees these injustices in the society and really just wants more. And it's interesting because I think at the very end, when Jade Fox is dying and she says something about, gosh, I can't remember the line, but it's, she has something about um, the deceit of an eight-year-old girl is like mm-hmm. the worst poison of all or something like that. And I, God, that's really interesting because, um, because Lee says something about her also being, if she doesn't have the right training, then she will be like a poisonous dragon or something. I can't remember. He, I can't remember the the exact words, yeah. but they have this view of her as somebody who it, she's like this loose cannon and she needs to be reined in because she could. And it's just, I mean, it's like any hero story, right? You get these powers and with great power comes great responsibility. And, she, and without that, without a way to learn how to hone that, she can very easily go down a dark road. And you see that when she decides to kind of attack the uh, the tavern and just kind of go to town on it, um, because it's just, an, it, I mean, I don't think she's doing that maliciously, but I think that she's kind of testing herself and trying out what she can do and stuff. But I feel like she's she's pushing herself down these darker paths and stuff. And it's not until the end where it, you get that beautiful sense of, of how the film ends up wrapping up where it's like, interesting. I I wonder what that final decision that she's taking is. Well, this is unleashing that pent up repression that we talked about a minute ago in Ang Lee's films. And in his, this is an Ang Lee thing. He has these, Jen in the restaurant is, 
is the effective uh, sex in Brokeback Mountain. It's the effective hulking out scene. And uh, about this specifically, uh, Ang Lee says, you know, I, I don't know if I'm making movies about specifically about emotional regulation or repression, but I'll tell you, my father was the principal in my high school. Next question. Like, he... I, <laughs> <laughs> I think he's he is intimately aware of of, you know, not that his experience is unique, but he is in, intimately aware of that connection to his experience and uh, how to demonstrate it cinematically. And that sequence in the restaurant is it's a pinnacle of of that. This is youth lashing out and she does it beautifully. So much rage. Like she, yeah. she handles that. She, she performs that internal rage at the world really well and, yeah. and external. I mean, it's <laughs> internal yeah. and external, it's, but you can yeah. see it in her face. Like even in early scenes when she is, is in her outfit and she's playing the role of the good daughter, um, getting ready for her wedding and all those sorts of things. You can just tell the look in her eye. And what's brilliant about the way Michelle Yo acts is you can tell that she she sees that, right? Yeah, she knows. Uh, that's what I think is just brilliant about the way she performs all of her scenes. But but Jen is just, and the way that Ji performs it is just like she sees all of that, uh, or she feels all of that, and it's there. And I just love that. Yeah, truly. I I, I think that you know it gets back to um, as we see that explosion of in Ji uh, uh, or in Jen's character. I mean, it gets back to that question of tradition and all of these traditional roles that every one of these characters is able to or or has to navigate. Right? What would what could they have had if all of them had been able to shun the tradition and live for one another, right? We already have that uh, uh, dark cloud. He's kind of got it. Like he, that that's what it looks like to live a, a life free of societal and cultural repression. And that is what's so alluring for Jen. And, uh, but, but can they can they truly ever let go and find freedom? And in Jen's case, her journey is the one that ends with the grand jump at the end, right? That that oh, whole, yes. you know, elegant. I, I see it as an elegant metaphor, but of, of her jumping off the bridge uh, as somebody who has finally found her freedom. Well, and it, uh, what's great about that is it ties so well into the story, right? Because yeah. we had this tale that that Lowe told her when the two of them are camped out in the desert about uh, the lover who jumped off the, the mountain. And uh, I can't remember. It was just something about sorrow or something. There was, a, there was this beautiful story about it. And then you have her perform that exact same action there, fulfilling kind of that that exact story that he had told in in a beautiful circular uh method and in a way that also created this moment for her to find this sense of freedom which mm -hmm. um and release i mean she just she needed that she she was trapped in this world that wasn't really you know gonna let her kind of continue doing the things that she was doing right uh, one last little tidbit about uh the um, just getting the money for this thing, which I thought was interesting. This is another one from Seamus. Uh, when they were confronted with the issue of, uh, you know, finding money, an incredibly complex financing agreement, because this is one of those that took a lot of different houses and a lot of different people wanted um, 
wanted a part of it. Uh, Seamus is noted for, uh, in the screenplay, actually, when it comes to these big action scenes, it, it's all the dialogue, 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 you know, location, setting, setting, and then in bold, they fight. And that's it. Like these 20, <laughs> it feels like 20 minute segments of fighting through the trees are represented in the script as they fight. And, um, uh, you know, when asked about it by financiers, he says, yeah, they fight. Ang Lee is going to direct the single greatest series of fight scenes <laughs> you've ever seen on film. They fight and we're going to let him do that. That's why it's in the script that way. He's going to figure it out. And uh, and that's ended up how they end up getting their friends at Sony Pictures Classics and uh, to, to come and redouble their efforts to get this movie made. And I, I thought that was a neat little screenplay trick. As a screenplay guy, I thought you might appreciate that. I definitely do. I always appreciate it in, in, when writers do things like that. I, yeah. I think that Baz Luhrmann did the same thing in Strictly Ballroom uh, <laughs> when for the final, the big ballroom dance, uh, dance off, you know, he just says it was something like they they dance and they win or something yeah, like that. They dance and that's and win, like the, right? the one line in the script uh, for this huge dance number that they had to come up with. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. Uh, going back to dancing. Yeah, it's all about the musical. It's all Andy. about the choreography. Yes, well, that that is the beauty of our fair director uh, Ang Lee. We've talked about him only on the Marvel Movie Minute side of the house, where we were uh, we we covered. Oh dear, we covered two thousand three, Hulk. We did cover Hulk. Yes, indeed. His very yeah. next film after this one. Yeah, which was different, uh, but also it, landed heavily in green. If we can call it parallel. <laughs> I, you know, I meant to say something about that coming off the heels of Cries and Whispers. Uh, <laughs> like, I feel like I just maybe it's just I don't like red as much. <laughs> well, there's a lot of red in that film. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a, definitely a lot of green. Well, and I think the production designers here really worked hard to find a really beautiful balance because, I mean, there's a lot yeah. of blues and greens, especially in the night scenes. And then they have such um, lustrous uh, kind of outfits. And I mean, the jade. That just beautiful, yeah, uh, the beautiful. sword itself. I mean, there's just so much stuff that's just really beautiful throughout the film. I feel like that's something Ang Lee has always appreciated in his films. He's yeah. found a really strong sense of production design. And even in the films that I haven't seen, just watching the trailers, I feel like that's there, you know? Right, right. Well, and I think it's just a sophisticated appreciation of the symbology, the sim the 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 symbolism of color. Uh, yeah. And yeah. that's that it, it feels super intentional. And to, to, you know, one of the things that I had complained about was that, um, you know, Bergman's film didn't have a lot of intentionality. It felt like it was so much red that it, it was hard to discern what he was trying to say with it. I don't think that is a, a challenge in this movie. That the way the green is used is incisive. Uh, it's it's he's using green in a way that really moves the story forward. And I think that's one of those things that that. Um, uh, you know, Ang Lee has is a real gift. He does, and I uh, I've always appreciated the way that he crafts his films. And I just I after watching this, I well, <laughs> two things. One, I question the uh, the um, my reluctance, I suppose, to watch any of his recent films. Like since Life of Pi, I've skipped Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and I skipped Gemini Man. And I'm like, should I have? Should I check those out? Because I do like him as a filmmaker. Is there something there for me? 
um, or not. I just don't know. I, I'm I'm curious what's keeping me from kind of watching those or even jumping. I mean, gosh, you look at his filmography. Yeah. I, I skipped Taking Woodstock. I skipped Lust Caution, um, you know, and then his earlier stuff. I mean, I, I didn't see Ride with the Devil and uh, or going all the way back to the beginning. I missed The Wedding Bank, but I think Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was the first film of his that I've seen. I, I was really surprised reviewing his filmography today of the number of films of his that I have seen and liked. And in contrast, the number of films of his that I haven't seen and assumed I wouldn't like. <laughs> I, Which think is the, I think that's the place. Wildly like, unfair. Right. I, I see the trailers and I'm like, I, I assume I'm not going to like that one, so I'm not going to bother. Yeah. It's like, what is keeping me from right. that? Like, why would I Why would I do that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like... Uh, you know, you go all the way back to something like uh, Pushing Hands um, and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Sense and Sensibility, The Ice Storm, Ride with the Devil, Crouching Tiger, The Hire. I love The Hire. Um, I, and then Hulk. And I feel like something broke with Hulk. And that changed the way I think about... Um, like something um, broke um, back? Yeah. <laughs> Just... I I thought Brokeback was uh, Brokeback is one of those movies that I feel like exists outside of my current opinion of of Ang Lee, which is suspect, and that is totally unfair because I also I I liked Brokeback Mountain and I loved Life of Pi. I haven't seen anything else, and I'm also um, I also was so upset about the forty eight frames per second bit on Billy Land's song <laughs> Halftime Walk that I refuse to see it on principle alone, visual principle alone. So right, right. I, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's fair. And I think that's that is a that's an incorrect assumption based on one experience, frankly. And my experience of watching Hulk this last time wasn't as bad as I even remembered it. It's really not bad. It's, no. It's just different. I, I will say I he has such a short filmography. I mean he only has 16, well 15 uh, featured credits and the higher i mean it's a bunch of short films he's just one of them he's um, just one of them but stop if we were ever no, no, to do no. an ang lee thing we would absolutely <laughs> include his bit from the higher even though no one could find that anymore but sure i but his filmography is so short and i've i've missed i don't know maybe a, a little less than half i'm like i should just flesh it out and watch the rest of them yeah. like i don't know what's keeping me from it so who knows? On you. It is interesting to see that he and James Jameis are getting back together for their announced film, Thrilla in Manila. So uh, I don't know why they stopped working together. Did you? It, it, was it? Was there a rift? Did you hear? I didn't. I didn't find anything about about a potential rift. I didn't look for a rift. I just noted that things had changed. Uh, but that says I, more I, about you than me. I'm always looking for the rift, Pete. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I should see by how you asked that question. Uh, I am very excited about Thrill in Manila. I think this is this this is a uh, it's a really uh, fantastic story, and uh, I'd love to see how he puts his his twist on it. It'll probably be ninety six frames per second for all we know. Real brain burner. <laughs> Make me really gouge my eyeballs out. Yeah. So that is we don't know anything else about that. Well, now I'm curious. I just have to search real quick. You're gonna you're gonna talk about the rift right now. We're doing live research, is what you're saying. Well, now I'm curious. Like, did something happen? Like, it really piques my curiosity because here's an our interview partners for life, but this was 2009. That was like when that was the last time they worked together on taking Woodstock. I don't know. I'm not going to keep looking. Uh, I, I but I am very curious 
about what's going on. I do see that James Jameis has been teaching at Columbia, so maybe he stepped out for a little while to possibly uh, he just focus on teaching. Although he did produce The Assistant and Driveways and Adam and Benji and Furlough and A Prayer Before Dawn and Casting John Bonet and Dave Vian and Alone in Berlin. He's produced like 800 movies since they stopped working together. So, okay. So he's been oh, there. well. But he, ha- <laughs> but, but he has been teaching undergrad film studies at Columbia uh, for quite a long time through all of this. So, uh, and we know how hard that is. <laughs> That's an easy job. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, this was based on book four in a series of five books by uh, Wang Dulu. And um, you can get that in its original Chinese and Amazon link in the show notes. I just want to throw this out there right now. Uh, those of you who listen to our Saturday matinee know, know that we do uh, lists based on movies that we're talking about. And I'd like to throw this out as a potential list option for this film. <laughs> movies based, uh, you know, original movies based on a book that's not the first book in the series. <laughs> that is a great idea. I don't think I want to be on the show that is assigned Let that, people but I would try love to, to hear them try. That, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, book four, and and we should we use this opportunity to talk just a little bit about because book five was also made into a movie. Are we gonna should we let that hang there? Was it book five of this, or I thought yeah. it was book five of something else? No, I thought it was book five of this. Are you sure? Well, now, we now whatever that. you say, are you sure with that face? I think no, I'm not sure because it says okay. I got to find this again because this was. Uh, the sequel, Iron Knight, Silver Vase, the next and last novel in the Crane Iron Pentology. Like this that didn't the same. That didn't that's sound not the like same Crane Iron Pentology. Is it the first? Did it say the Crane Iron Pentology that it was based on? Well, it was written in Chinese. Crane Iron <laughs> Pentology. Let's just see what are the books in the Crane Iron Pentology. Crane startles Kunlun, Book One. Precious Sword, Golden Hairpin, Book Two. Sword Force, Pearl Shine, Book Three, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Book Four, Iron Knight, Silver Vase, Book Five. Okay, then it is. Yes, it is. Now okay. I am sure. Now you are sure. I uh, I didn't know what the series name was because you know it didn't say what the series name was. It's this is where Wikipedia fails you because on one it says it's based on a five part novel series by Wang Dulu. From the 1930s, the fourth book is yeah. called Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And then later when it's talking about the the uh, sequel, it says it's based on the book Iron Knight Silver Vase, the next and last novel, the Crane Iron Pentology. But it doesn't mention the author and it doesn't yeah. mention that it's the, <laughs> it's the same series. So, Well, that's what it is. And you can get it. And you can also, if you'd like, <laughs> you can watch the movie on Netflix. You, you could. You should not. Even though we'll you, talk, and, you uh, yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll talk, talk about, about that. All right. Uh, movie was written by uh, Huling Wang and James Seamus and Guo Jung Tsai. James Seamus does a lot of the writing on the projects with Ang Lee. And so yeah. uh, it's interesting to see his name thrown into the mix here. But I feel like, I feel like it's a, I don't know, at the, uh, I shall say, I feel like at this point in their working relationship, it was a very critical part of the way that they worked, where Eng was directing, James was uh, producing and writing or co-writing the scripts. And I feel like yeah. they had a natural um, way of communicating with each other that I think inevitably benefited the stories. Truly. 
and, and I'm saying that largely also because I don't know a lot about these other two writers. But I feel like knowing the fact that that the Lee directing Seamus co-writing and producing working relationship was here. I feel like that is uh, part of the reason it's a success. Yeah, he talks about the way he talks about their experience working together. He says he, he's funny. And it, I maybe maybe the interview I was watching was on the cusp of their massive rift that is as the, heretofore <laughs> undocumented. Uh, but when you hear him talk about it, he says, you know, I'll spend a lot of time writing something and I package it and it's this ball. It's like this ping pong ball. And I send it off across the table and it disappears much longer than you think. Like it travels much farther than you think it should travel for being a game of ping pong. And when it comes back, it's a football. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to look at it and like unravel it and figure out, is the nugget of my ping pong ball still in here now that it's a football? And then I have to send them back a uh, baseball. And so I just really like the way he talks about collaborating with Ang Lee because he puts it like, for some reason, that metaphor is so clear to me. <laughs> what it must be like. Yeah, You're not right? even playing ping pong anymore, James. <laughs> Welcome to the big boy club. <laughs> oh, so good. I, I'd love to just bring up the fact that Tan Dun did the score, and it is just a sumptuous, just uh, heartbreaking score. It's just beautiful. Yo-Yo Ma playing uh, the cello in there is just, I mean, it just is a really one of, I think, just the perfect film scores out there. It's just so beautiful and it works so well. And then when the drums kicking during some of the uh, the big uh, the fights and stuff, it's just it works so well in context of what they're doing here. Yo-Yo Ma brings an epic cello to this score. Uh, I I love this score. It is, I want to say it's in the top five of my favorite scores of all time. It's it's a great score. It's so easy to listen to. It's just beautiful. It's just there's this there's this just like it's like I said, it's this heartbroken sense to it. It's just there's this longing in there that I just always feel. And yeah, uh, yeah I just truly love it. So it's great. Yeah, I, I think it is one of those sort of those scores that you can do anything to. Are you writing? Are you writing email? You can put on this score and you can write email. Uh, are you uh, cooking? You can totally put on this is a great cooking score. Uh, do you just want to be sad? This one will do it. Or happy? You could even be happy during this one. Yeah, it's got everything. It's got everything. You want to just just sit around and eat? You could eat to this. It's a great eating score. <laughs> I feel like this was really early in the period of Yo-Yo Ma popping up in in uh, film scores. I feel like uh, he had worked with John Williams just a couple years before in Seven Years in Tibet. Yeah. And then, uh, I, I mean, he was in like Master and Commander, uh, Far Side of the World a few years later, Memoirs of a Geisha. And I feel like it really kind of pushed him into this place where he started popping up um, more and more as somebody who would be in film scores. And I mean, I have an album release of his where it's just scores of Ennio Morricone's music. And it's just, uh, it's just amazing to listen to what he can do with his, uh, with his instrument. It's just, it's really fantastic. Uh, he's an, he's an amazing artist. Oh yeah. He's fantastic. You know, I know him. Did you know that? Did I tell you this story? I didn't know that. I do. I, I you know should have him. had him here so he could chat about it with him. Well, let's be super clear, Andy. I know him. He does not know me. Okay. 
Uh, but so I, he's, I he's another best friend who hasn't met you. No, he he has met me. I oh, just okay. don't believe he knows me. We shook I hands. See. And the whole reason I want to bring up this story is not specifically to name drop, but to tell you how amazing it is to be an incredible fan of somebody and have him stand up out of a chair, cross a room and shake your hand and say to you, Andy, hi, I'm Yo-Yo. <laughs> Andy, that is a life changing introduction. It is like the onion of social complexities because I what I want to say is, hi, Yo-Yo, I'm Pete. But also I want to say, I love you. And also I want to say, can I give you a hug? And also his son Nicholas was there and I... I have a son named Nicholas. I'm not going to tell you whether they're related. It was a transformational celebrity introduction for Pete. I kind of also want to just say, hi, I'm Slinky. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird hearing his name out of context. I, yeah. or just like the first name, because I'm so used you to Yo-Yo You're not Ma. supposed to, right. You're not supposed it's to like, hear Yo-Yo. It's like Tom Hanks. It's like, uh, like if he said, hey, I'm Tom. It's like, uh, Okay, Tom, but you're Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks Tom? Is, Tom <laughs> Hanks, Tom. Hello, Tom Hanks. Yeah. So. Oh, God. It's exhausting keeping up. So funny. Uh, okay, so I feel like that should go in the glossary. There's got to be some sort of like the yo-yo conundrum. <laughs> there really where, does. Where, yeah, where open, the, open those dusty pages of our glossary yeah. and let's write it in oh, there. Oh, <laughs> we've got it. The yo-yo conundrum where somebody's where a, a, a celebrity's name, first name is inseparable, canonically inseparable from their last name. Exactly. What do you think? That I, is, I think it's perfect. It. Put it up. Put some intern. Get that on the website. <laughs> Stat. We got a new glossary entry. It's been about 10 years. <laughs> it's been a while. Oh, dear. Uh, all right. Uh, you got some facts and tidbits? I have a couple that I thought were interesting. Uh, one, the, apparently there's a, a pterosaur genus that is called Cryptodragon, and there is there a Ceratopsian genus called Yinlong. Both of these mean hidden dragon, one the first in Greek, the second in Mandarin, and both of these have been named because they're they're alluding to this film, the whole idea of a hidden dragon, which I thought was pretty interesting. And I think they're and, both Gen 7 Pokemon. <laughs> sound like it, right? <laughs> the crypto dragon. Absolutely. And then the other one that I thought was kind of interesting, for anyone who's a fan of the Prince of Persia video games, the character of Dark Cloud, the desert bandit, he was uh, kind of, he influenced the development of the protagonist in that game. Does that make Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, the first video game movie? <laughs> I, th I think Mario Brothers still fine. <laughs> okay, but is it the first good one? Uh, it should be. Andy, this could be it. I, for it's the certainly poster, better than Prince of Persia. For the poster artwork, I put in Prince of Persia. <laughs> it makes me now want to see Chen Chang play the Prince of Persia, Persia instead of Jake Gyllenhaal. 100%. What else, what else we got for sequels? Can we talk about sequels yet? Well, we yeah, we'll get to the movie. But before that, there was a video game. Uh, there was a, a a whole series of comics that came out, and I didn't even know this had existed. There was apparently a Taiwanese TV series, 34 episodes it ran, that was based on the original novel. And it was called, it ended up getting released here in the U.S. and Canada in 2004. It was called A New Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon. I never knew it existed, so obviously it wasn't playing anywhere around me. But how interesting that there was a whole 34-episode series about it. 
That's crazy. I am. Uh, I didn't do this before the show, so I'm doing it live right now. And I am watching a playthrough of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon video game. Did you look at it? I didn't. No, I, I instead was looking at the TV show. It starts with uh, clips from the movie. Then it so you watch them like jump through the the um, uh, the trees, the bamboo, and then it takes you to the CG representation of these characters, and you see their hit points and attack and defense. And there's a long scroll of story. It tells you pretty much all of the story in a scrolling <laughs> scrolling text roll. This is not a famous game, and I know why. <laughs> this seems terrible. Oh, you know, it says you could be expected for the game of this era. It is, uh, there's a lot of of swiping around and um, knocking things down and non-player characters who do not participate in the game. You pretty much wander around killing guards. That is the story so far. <laughs> they don't, they don't, you're not, don't have to worry about them. This was an early Ubisoft effort and Ubisoft has come a long, long way since. So we just have to call this game practice and move along. Exactly right. It's called a tie-in, and there's a lot of baggage that comes yes. with things that are called a tie-in. Truth, indeed. The comics uh, they specifically focused on Lo and Jen's characters, and we didn't bring this up, but uh, it's worth talking about the whole idea of the crouching tiger, hidden dragon in the title, because it's it's from a poem, I believe. Um, and it's about how there are hidden masters everywhere, and and you know they're all just hiding, and you don't even know they're there. And uh, it, they tie directly to the characters of Lo and Jen, um, and the fact that uh, Jen's character or Lo's character, his name means little tiger, and Jen's character, uh, her name means delicate dragon. And uh, so it's just, uh, yeah, just kind of a proverb: talented or dangerous people are hidden from view. There you go. So they could be talking about you Us. and me. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that was an option for titles. When right. we were, <laughs> well, Crouching feet, hidden Andy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> did, we, did, did we want to talk any more about the sequel? Oh, directed God. by uh, Yuan Lo Ping. All right, let's talk about it. Let's do it. Just a brief aside to talk Ugh. about the Netflix funded Netflix original Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon colon Sword of Destiny 2006. Yes, and, and I said the name was Yuan Wuping. Yeah. But, right. uh, you know, and he's directed a lot of stuff. Like he is really, I, I was like, oh, is this his directorial debut? Oh, no. No. He's directed quite a number of things and he's done stunt work on a lot of things and he's done kind of the choreography on a number of things. And I, I just feel like there was no sense of any of the Ang Lee James Seamus mag magic with this story. It felt incredibly straightforward, pretty dull. It wasn't uh, exciting. It wasn't interesting. I, I mean, the action scenes, there were, I mean, obviously with him at the helm, there was some pretty great to watch um, scenes with, with the fights and stuff. And to that end, I enjoyed it. But I think you and I both had the same problem. As soon as it starts, the fact that they made the decision to film it in English instead of Mandarin that was an immediate like uh, problem for me. It's like they already weren't giving themselves enough credit to do it right. Very frustrating. I so Yamuping, we've mentioned his name, stunt guy, incredible, incredible stunt guy, and that is a legacy that he has. That is, um, he stands 
alone in in many ways in in international filmmaking like he is he's done some incredible stuff he he attended the same peking opera school as jackie chan and uh samo cambo hung and blau yen and Corey yuan and uh so uh he's he's been around and and done some incredible stuff i think this movie so deeply suffers for not having the artistic touch on top of those incredible moves, right? Yeah. I cannot, I don't feel, I feel like I, I may have had a different experience with this movie had I gone into it without the baggage of the Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon experience, right? Yeah, the, the, right. Because I can see this and have fun with it as kind of a B-level, um, more ham-fisted kind B-level of... B-level wuxia movie, right? Wuxia movie, right? Yeah. Absolutely. But this movie has... It, it is based on a book that's part of the series. It has all of the baggage of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and they filmed it. It is a t- in English, and it's terrible. <laughs> it just is... T- you can't... I can't get over it. And frankly, I don't think the... I had fun watching some of the action stuff, but generally... I don't think the action stuff was was filmed and presented in a, nearly as exceptional a fashion to live up to its namesake. It is it's just hard cuts, cutaways to pivoting shoes, lots more close up, far less yeah. balletic, uh, uh, far more of a focus on on the like hard angles and the hard edge of the fighting, uh, and so it makes less of a statement that way. I didn't care for it. Yeah, it was it, it was a problematic film. I'm glad I've seen it, but it was a big disappointment. Yeah, it's still it's a six point one on the IMDb six star scale, so it squeaks yeah. squeaks over the top. A lot of people had more fun with it than we did, but um, maybe don't watch it with this one in proximity. <laughs> just just watch it and just look for fun, right? Yeah, yeah. So how to do an award season? Really well. This film was noticed. Some might say it had 102 wins and 133 other nominations. It was a very successful film in award circuits. The Academy Awards, it had 10 nominations. It was the most nominations ever for a non-English language film at the time until 2018, Roma tied. And then, of course, that was broken in 2019 when Parasite had 11 nominations. Mm This film was nominated for, uh, I mean, the reason that we're here, it was nominated for Best Picture. Um, It was one of five. This was still a period we were doing five nominations. It had uh, Gladiator, which is the film that won. Also, Chocolat, which some say is only there because of Miramax. And we talked about that the last two episodes, Miramax's (laughs) push for its films to be recognized. I love Chocolat. I think it's a great film. Is it Best Picture worthy? I don't know. I think, honestly, I'd have to look and see what other films came out in 2000, but I'm sure there were some other ones that were, oh, I'd say, hey, put Requiem for a Dream in there. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. So this was the Soderbergh double whammy year also. Mm-hmm. Uh, art Direction, Set Decoration, it did win. Cinematography, it also did win. Peter Powell, a beautiful cinematography here. Beat out Oh Brother. I believe there was some uh, discussion about that at the time because Oh Brother had such a gorgeous look. And this is really when that manipulation of color really started in the year 2000 and what you could do in film. And um, some people, I think, might have complained about the fact that um, they were not capturing it on set but digitally manipulating it, which might have led to Oh Brother losing and this winning. Regardless, this is beautiful, and it, I think, still 
I would say it deserves to win, but oh, brother, I'd say I wouldn't have been disappointed if it won. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best costume design, lost to Gladiator. Best director, lost to uh, Steven Soderbergh for Traffic. Best editing, lost to Traffic also. Best music, uh, we did win for that, original score. And best original song, nominated for A Love Before Time, which, you know, is an okay song. It's an end credits sort of song, as far as I'm concerned. It lost to Wonder Boys. Uh, Bob Dylan sung the song, Things Have Changed. And I just have to say this, Pete, I love this about Bob Dylan. Ever since he won that Oscar, he's taken it on tour with him, and it sits on uh, on top of his amplifier. Uh, he's touring. And I just have to say, that means I've been in the room with his Oscar, or in the theater with his Oscar. It just made me <laughs> excited to hear that. Uh, adapted screenplay, Lost to Traffic. Okay, foreign language film. It did win that category. The other films, and, and this was that thing. It's like, well, you're nominated for Best Foreign Language Film, so we'll give you that one, but you're yeah. not going to win Best Picture. We're still in that mindset. It it beat Amores Peros, which, I mean, I just rewatched that, and what a stellar film that is. Another just top of the top-notch film. Divided We Fall, which is a, a really strong film. Everybody's Famous is a really fun film about fame and the taste of others. It's actually a really good year of best foreign language films, but I'd say Crouching Tiger absolutely should have won. Amores Peros, if it won, I wouldn't have been disappointed, but, uh, but I, I still would pick Crouching Tiger. Now, I thought this was interesting because I didn't know this. I saw that it was submitted by Taiwan because, you know, each film that is nominated for Best Foreign Language Film is the one film that its country submits to the Academy. Right. So Taiwan, so this film was submitted by Taiwan, even though it was a co-production between uh, the Taiwanese, Chinese, American, and Hong Kong companies. Um but what's interesting is for the purpose of Oscar submissions, they actually recognize mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong all as separate entities. So they, they each have a chance to submit a film. And um, China submitted Breaking the Silence this year, directed by Sun, Sun Tzu, but did not uh, get nominated. Interesting, the very next year, Zhang Yimou's Hero is nominated by them. And by, then Hong by Kong, China, not Taiwan. By China, by China not Taiwan, right? Well, it, so makes, that's, it makes sense as Ang Lee is a Taiwanese national. Like he's, it does, and I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of also pushed that. Like, let's yeah. do it through Taiwan, right? right. And but I but now I'm like okay, so I feel like these three entities are probably debating. Okay, well, if you're going to submit that. You know, we're going to submit this. And I, I feel like they're probably, you know, battling about, we don't want to submit that because like Hong Kong, they submitted In the Mood for Love, Wong sure. Kar-wai's film, which is an absolutely fantastic film that equally should have been on this list of films nominated for Best Foreign Language. Well, and, and, and I wonder if it has only gotten, if it is more or less a complex discussion now than it was then. Uh, just yeah, given, given right. the way the political winds continue to evolve. And shift. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be very curious. I need to look and see if they are still in a yeah. place where they're all submitting separate ent ent entries. Yeah. So um, the last thing I want to talk about with awards, I just have a question for you because it's been talked about quite a bit in recent years uh, with with Asian actors not getting recognition um, when they're not when the film that they're in might be nominated or something like that, mm -hmm. right? And I, I think that's something that just happened uh, with uh, the farewell that came out when Aquafina 
who very likely should have been nominated for her performance yes. in that film, didn't get uh, any didn't get any recognition from the Academy. So I'm just curious, um, you know, looking at the best actor and best actress categories, and maybe best supporting actress, uh, if you think any of these people should pop out, and we'd put either Chow Yun Fat, Michelle Yeoh, or Ji uh, Zhang in there. Uh, I'm guessing Chen Chang probably isn't going to be one of the people we'd be putting in. But Russell Crowe for Gladiator, Ed Harris for Pollock, Jeffrey Rush for Quills, Javier Bardem for Before Night Falls, or Tom Hanks for Castaway are the actor nominees. Yeah, I mean, who do you drop from that? Well, I haven't seen Pollock, so I can't speak specifically to Ed Harris in that role. And I can't, I I haven't seen Before Night Falls either, so I haven't seen Javier Bardem. Jeffrey Rush was great in Quills. Um, I don't know. I have a hard time um, with the three that I have left and Chow Yun-Fat. I don't know. I think Chow Yun-Fat stands uh, right up with Tom Hanks and Russell Crowe. I, I think it's a fine set. I and and Ed Harris. I, I actually I have seen Pollock. I have not seen Jeffrey Rush or Javier Bardem in those two movies, but um, I have heard nothing but great things. I could drop either right. one of them. Um, I just know that they uh, they come highly uh, acclaimed. I I think Giant Fat should have could have been nominated it's really tricky because he and michelle yo have yeah. played such subdued parts like yeah. their their performances are so internal but you could say the same thing about anthony hopkins and emma thompson in 100%. the remains of the day yep. you know yep. i mean a- absolutely very restrained types of performances um best actress julia roberts aaron brockovich ellen burston in requiem for a dream joan allen in the contender juliette binoche in chocolat and laura linney and you can count on me i feel like you need to run through supporting actress too Supporting actress, Marsha Gay Harden for Pollock, Frances McDormand for Almost Famous, Judy Dents, uh, Dench, Dents. <laughs> She's Judy. not listening. Don't worry. <laughs> Judy Dench for Chocolat, Julie Walters for Billy Elliot, and Kate Hudson for Almost Famous. I would drop Frances McDormand from Supporting Actress, and I would put one of the two in there, and I would drop... Um, Oh, dear. It's interesting that you're debating which one you'd pick. I feel like Michelle Yeoh is the is the lead and, and uh, Xi is the supporting. But Well, I, really... I do too. But I feel like if we're going to play this game, Andy, we have to play it with the same sense of politics that yeah, the right? studios do, right? Because, you know, like who is more likely to win against those other actresses in one of those categories? Because we don't have to put them in that category, right? That's so, true. Very true. I don't know who I would put in which one right now, but I do think I would drop Laura Linney and I would drop Frances McDormand and I would put these two women in the in one of those slots. I would drop um uh Juliette Binoche and Chocolat. I mean, I think she was fine. I, I I prefer Laura Linney and you can count on me. I thought that was a great performance. Um so I would drop Juliette Binoche and I would put Michelle Yeoh in there. Mm-hmm. And in supporting actress, um, I would also drop Judy Dench from Chocolat and and uh, uh and I would put the other actress in there. Do you think with all of these women, Julia Roberts, Ellen Bernstein, uh Joan Allen, let's say either Juliette Binoche or Laura Linney, um I, I think you're probably right. Is there any political gain in putting the fresh eyes in Best Actress? Well, um, I think Young, that it, stand out. Like, yeah, what I mean, would I think Harvey that's exactly do? right? 
That's just gone really gross. You just went to a dark, dark place just by saying that. Because we know what Harvey would do. We know what Harvey would do. God. Andy, I was talking about Miramax and you made it dirty. You you didn't say Miramax. You said Harvey. So anyway, uh, but you're right. It's a it's a marketing game. And we see that all the time in in situations like when um, Blood Diamond was uh, nominated. We had Leonardo DiCaprio nominated for Best Actor, but Mm -hmm. Jimon Honsu, who largely was the larger character in the film, nominated for Best Supporting Actor and the better actor in the film. Yes. You know, you see this coming up quite a bit. You know, the the battle between Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor. and it's frustrating. It always is frustrating. I mean, even Green Book, we had that battle between the two um, largely lead actors. And I think it's frustrating because studios don't like to take um, lead actors and put them in the same category up against each other because they cancel each other out so often. I mean, that happened in Thelma and Louise. It happened in um, uh, the one, oh, I'm, why am I blanking on the one that just came out with Emma Stone and uh, the, the, about favorite? the queen, the favorite, mm-hmm. right? You know, in that film. But again, you had three essential lead actresses in that particular right. film. What do you do? Let's right. make one lead actor and the other two supporting. And that, I mean, that's how they get away with it. And it just makes it hard. Yeah. Well, I think we figured it out. And so now you should tell us about the box office. Well, for Lee's Wuxia film, he had a budget of $17 million to work with, which is about $25.3 million in today's dollars. The film premiered at Cannes in May 2000, then Taiwan, China, and Hong Kong in July, before hitting U.S. screens December 8th, 2000, opposite everyone's favorite Dungeons & Dragons, Proof of Life, Snatch, and Vertical Limit. What a weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, however, could crack How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which was still holding on to the number one spot, but this film didn't even crack the top 10. It opened spot 15. Like last week's film, however, this was a box office slow burn. It crept into the top 10 in its fifth week of release and got as high as fourth place right around when the Oscar announcements were made. It stayed in the top 10 past the Oscars and slowly petered out, finally leaving theaters in June. That is a pretty healthy run. It did end up making $128 million domestically and $85.4 million internationally for a total adjusted gross of $318 million and an adjusted profit per finishment of $2.4 million. That doesn't make it as profitable as Life is Beautiful overall, but it did become the highest grossing film produced overseas domestically. It is a surprise then, I guess, maybe, that they took so long to get that sequel made. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Thought better of themselves until the very last minute. Right, right. All right. Well, this was a, a real treat. I, I feel like now we're getting into the part of this series where I just really so glad we get to talk about some of these movies that are that I've wanted to talk about for so long. This is surely one of them. And I'm so glad we have them in our catalog now. I think yeah, we should absolutely take it to the mat. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And uh, you'll see all of the movies that we've talked about on this very show in a friendly stack ranking that allows you to have the same sort of experience of pain and anguish that we do every week. So swipe (laughs) over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart. You will be taken straight to Crouching Tiger, the good one. And you can add it to your list and see how it stacks up against ours. It's not as hard to find as Z. No, it's not. All you have to do is type Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and then stop typing. (laughs) Yes, don't, don't add any more characters to it. All right, well, let's do it.
Oh, yeah. That's me. Yeah. So I lost track. You can okay. go now. <laughs> First up, we have Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or the Birdcage. Crouching Tiger. Crouching Tiger. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Do the Right Thing. Oh, Andy. You go first. <laughs> crouching tiger. Okay, crouching tiger. Oof. Crouching tiger, hidden dragon, or up in the air. Crouching tiger. Crouching tiger. Weird. Crouching tiger, hidden dragon, or children of men. I feel like you're going to be conflicted. I'm not conflicted. Because it's crouching tiger? Because it's children of men. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm actually going to give this one. I, I, feel, I feel in agreement. I, I, I love that. All right. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Th- that is my greatest victory of this show, is to get you to rewatch Children of Men and totally turn around on that. <laughs> my greatest failure is to not get you to turn around on 2001. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> Crouching Tiger, Hidden my win. <laughs> right. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Seabiscuit? Crouching Seabiscuit. Tiger. Crouching Tiger. Seabiscuit. Yeah, Crouching Tiger. Seabiscuit. Nope. Yep. Here and... we go. And... <laughs> Straight to the mat. All right, here we go. One, and a one, two, two three. three, rock. <laughs> okay. What was that? I know it seems like I didn't say anything, <laughs> but in my head, I screamed dragon, and I realized <laughs> I don't know how to play this game anymore. <laughs> we have to do it again. I'm sorry. We have to do it again. It's rock. No, I win papers, by default. Or series. What? Or what? <laughs> how do you just win by default? I had a mental blah. I had a stroke. <laughs> And besides, everybody knows that had if I said we dragon, boxers, I would have won. Right now, <laughs> dragons win, and that's what I said in my head. What? Uh, All right, you know what? As a gentleman, I'll take it. But I want you to know that no, I feel no, like we'll redo it. You are this is... actually taking advantage of me in my mental state. <laughs> I always take advantage of you in your mental state. <laughs> that's why we have such a good relationship. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when you're treating me the way you're treating me. What? <laughs> Huh? What? Uh, Squirrel. No. Uh, all right. So let's do it again, just all to right. be fair. All right. All, all right. right. Rock, paper, what? or scissors. <laughs> Those are the three. Yes. Okay. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Okay. Fine. Much ado about nothing, uh, apparently. Uh, my goodness. Uh, oh, tiger, my dragon, dragon would have kicked your ass. <laughs> it was a really big rock. Piece. <laughs> Uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Delicatessen? I will take Crouching Tiger. I think I'll take Delicatessen. Ooh. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, here we go. One, One, two, two, three. three. Scissors. Ah! Crouching Tiger takes it. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Snowpiercer? Snowpiercer. Ooh. Hmm, this one does give me pause now. Um, wow. We've reached the pause position. We really have. I'll go Snowpiercer also, but I feel conflicted there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Snatch? Released the same weekend. Look at that. Um, crouching Tiger. I will take Crouching Tiger. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Snowpiercer again? Well, we already know the answer to that mm-hmm. one. Snowpiercer, and that puts Crouching Tiger way up on our chart. Spot 48 out of 466 films. That's a 90%. 90%. I went in to review this movie, my previous ranking, and I I was surprised at where where I had, I guess, just sort of 
put it. I this is back when I was doing my rapid Andy Nelson patented rapid ranking technology. <laughs> and uh and, and so I was surprised with where I put it. Uh where did where is it on your list? I assume you've re-ranked it. Uh it was pretty it, I felt like it was pretty good, so I didn't. Um yeah. it was in spot two twenty out of forty four fifty or like a ninety five percent. I'm like, oh, that's pretty fair. I'm gonna leave it there. Um so I didn't go through the anguish of having to um move it around but um okay uh, i was so, pretty comfortable with it in that spot so i will just tell you mine is a 202 out of 1463 which is an 86 percent mm. it's weirdly it's high but it feels low given the conversation we just had if i were to go by the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash next wheel this would suggest that my letterbox ranking should be a four and a half star i don't know what do you do is this a five star movie for you Oh, it is. It is. From the minute I saw it, it was five stars in a heart. I just completely was enamored by everything about it. The characters, the journey that they take, the the magic of the kind of the wuxia wire work, everything. Uh, it, and I still felt that watching it this time. I mean, it's of course, it's a five star movie, but I just wanted to make a big deal out of it. <laughs> well, you'll notice in the show notes, I pre-wrote five, five stars in a heart for you. Before... <laughs> <laughs> Before he said anything, because I'm like, he he needs to just say that. What's funny is I'm re-ranking it right now, and it's coming out lower. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm going to keep ranking it. Hold on. Uh, nope, I disagree. <laughs> Let's do it again. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, the joys of Flickchart. Oh, I hate this game. All right. So we've done it. We've done Crouching Tiger now. Where do we go from here? We're going to be just going a few years to 2006, and we're going to be looking at an interesting film that is a pair. It came out in a pair of films in the year 2006. It is Clint Eastwood, a name not expected in the foreign language films nominated for Best Picture category, but there is Clint Eastwood, uh, who directed a pair of films that, uh, and we're looking specifically at Letters from Iwo Jima, the follow-up to Flags of Our Fathers both films about the Battle of Iwo Jima. I had totally forgotten that this was a foreign language nominee, and, and my first response was, in fact, you're wrong. This shouldn't well, be not, on the list. <laughs> well, and that's what's so funny, is it's it's nominated for Best Picture, but because of the American production of it, it could not be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. Yeah. All so, right. Well, we'll talk more about that next week. When the movie ends! Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always doeth. They do. They do doeth. Oh, do they. And here it is uh, as Amazon. I think you could say that this crop of reviews might be the best set of one-star reviews we have ever read, given the ratio of reviews that are complaining about the product, a product Amazon sells but did not make, and the movie that Amazon had nothing to do with. Yes. Most people hate the, I think we have one person who actually hated the movie <laughs> out of all of I, the one I, stars. I think there were two. There were, there two. were two. There were two people yeah. who did not like the movie. Uh, so way to go, Amazon 
collective audience well, for and, using and we'll Amazon say, for what it's supposed to be. There were some people who just really don't like it just because, oh, it has subtitles? Oh. Yeah. So I don't count That's that true. as somebody no, who actually right. doesn't like the movie. You're right. Those are people yeah. who can't read. I get it. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm gonna, I want to start with one because it's a point that we brought up specifically when we were talking about the movie. Do you mind? Go for it. Uh, Teen UN says, uh, one star bad subtitles make the Blu-ray version unwatchable. I find this really curious, Andy. The mm-hmm. cinematic masterpiece is ruined by the newly translated subtitles contained in the Blu-ray version released July 27th, 2010. The theatrical subtitles flowed smoothly and at a certain rhythm that helped the film win an Oscar. The new translations contain distracting juvenile language that ruins the original script and makes this an entirely different film. I doubt the director or writers approved of these new translations. The Blu-ray version is not what the filmmakers had intended for audiences, and it should be pulled from the shelves until the original subtitles are restored. Buy the DVD version or wait till Sony cleans up their act. I watched my old DVD of it. Hmm. I wonder if my all of my, oh, Ang Lee loves language, <laughs> uh, was, was based on my experience of watching essentially that original theatrical release. What do you think? Did you watch the, I, you watched Blu-ray? I, well, I did. I, you know, it's funny because I, I actually checked the Blu-ray out from the library. I have the DVD that I purchased at the time, but I checked the Blu-ray out just to, um, just to, you know, maybe rip it for image purposes for the you show. You don't. You didn't. I don't uh, you actually don't do, do that. that. No. I don't do that ever. Um, <laughs> I watched it so that so, I could watch it on my iPod TV. Well, yeah. So I watched the Blu-ray because I was curious and I was just like, you know, it, it looks good, but I don't, I, it's been so long since I had seen it and I didn't do a comparison to see if my DVD subtitles are different. Interesting. That is interesting. I'm, I mean, homework, at least. I'm just saying. If you love I'm going to set up two TVs. We're going to do side by side. Yeah. Do a side by side. But right. I'm also going to rent a 35 millimeter projector, and I'm going to buy a 35 millimeter print, and we'll screen that just to see. If you it's should the because same. there might be a difference there. Actually, I think in 2010 the Blu-ray they actually used the subtitle track to 1992's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So maybe that mm. why, that's why they're having problems with it. It just I bet so. It doesn't bet so. it doesn't line up often. No, Go ahead. Right. Right. What do you got? I've got a one star by Jack Crane. Who says, I remember when the American public was scammed into watching this <gasps> film. The media and the critics raved about it. Then the public went to see it and realized they were conned. It was one of the worst movies that I have ever seen. This was made back when the Chinese film industry was still kind of amateur. They have improved vastly since then, which is admirable. Still, this movie is complete junk. Don't watch it. Oh. Now, I will just say, Pete, Jack Crane has uh, 253 reviews on Amazon. I couldn't find any five-star movie reviews. I'm sure they're there. I just didn't dig too deep. But let me run through some of the other films that uh, good old Jack Crane rated one star. Sure. The Peanut Butter Falcon. Oh. Favorite of yours. Oh, come on. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The Farewell. Uh, It says Aquafina is depressing to watch and ruins everything she's in. Oh my goodness. Blind spotting. Um, Hunters season one. And uh, a little film called Parasite. What? Yeah. So. Well. 
I don't have any other uh, troublesome reviews from my reviewer except for this one star re- review on a super cheap and flimsy Daleks flat build trucker hat. So it feels like I think my that's I mean, that's the one star review. I feel like uh, I feel like mine's better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start. We're going to start drafting Amazon reviewers on the show. That's what we're going to do. We're going to create a stable, each of us, and we're going to pit our reviewers against one another. This is going to be great. I can't wait. I can't can't wait. wait. I wish I knew how games worked. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. (laughs) And for the record, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is now 74 on my list out of 1463, which makes it a 95%. It was Hot Fuzz, which is also poorly ranked. Yeah, it you got to do some. Uh, I hate. Some serious. I hate this cleanup thing. I know this is what happens to you. You you eat some ding dongs and you go into a flick chart <laughs> hyper focus <laughs> for about three days. Got to eat some ding dongs. Excuse me. <laughs> you just become a complete animal. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022. We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.